Welcome to the Culture of Kindness podcast. Have you wondered about the direction the world is going? Wondered if you and the rest of the world are connecting in a healthy way? I can see it in others, and now I've changed the lens through which I see the world, and to be kind is the only possible result. Because you, you don't have the language of talking, it's kind of almost a language of kindness. In this podcast, we discuss everything from what makes a brilliant leader to where is the world going on our current trajectory and how can we make a culture of kindness and do we actually need to or are we doing all right just as we are? It's roughly 2,000 years since some bloke got nailed to a tree for suggesting that we should all be a little bit nicer to each other. And I fear that over the last 2,000 years we haven't moved on very far from that. Inherently, humans are very badly flawed. And there, there is... I, Nahala Summers, became obsessed about the power of kindness after it was the kindness of a stranger that changed my life. So now I am lucky enough to talk to the most eclectic mix of people, probably on any podcast. Come inside and subscribe. It will open your mind and world up to the best examples of living life wholeheartedly. When you look on the Facebook, even when you look in the comments on BBC, everyone goes, oh, I hate bullies. But then that's like saying, I hate water. You know, bullies have come from somewhere. And what was going to tap on my shoulder from somewhere that said, you cannot just do an act of kindness in a day and that be good enough. Thank you so much, Sanjeev, for coming on um, the podcast today. You are so welcome. And the work that you do, I'm fascinated by. Thank and you I very guess much. it's yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. I guess I'm going to ask you just to go straight into that, go into um, your charity, the work yeah. that you do, and the story of why you ended up doing that is is really important as well. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So I'm a uh, what's called a consultant pediatric intensivist, which means I look after critically ill children. And um, I, I came to Leicester nearly 23 years ago now. Uh, I was appointed to start a new intensive care unit for children. Um, I trained in London and Los Angeles, and I was looking for a challenge. It was possible that I went back to Great Ormond Street, because that's where I trained. But I didn't want to do that, because Leicester were looking for somebody to start something from scratch. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, that'd be better. Um, so I came to Leicester from Los Angeles. A lot of people say, what? Los Angeles? <laughs> <laughs> I, think I, the the L, I think the L in the title. Training, in my defense, I couldn't have stayed even you know, if I wanted to. And yeah. the conditions to staying, uh, I was certainly not interested in. Uh, anyway, so I wanted a challenge. Uh, I think I was probably a bit naive uh, when I sort of, you know, uh, embarked on this challenge in, in a good way. Mm-hmm. Uh, starting something from scratch where nobody was trained. You need very special special training, specialized training, which is why I spent five years training into how to look after critically ill children and, mm-hmm. and make sure they pull through their very serious illnesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I joined the, the Leicester Royal Infirmary, there was nobody there, who nurses, doctors. So it was a challenge from the beginning. Uh, and we also had another 
hospital. We have another hospital, the Glenfield Hospital um, in Leicester, a heart unit where um, children after looked after after heart surgery. And a year after I joined, they were also struggling. Uh, they lost their consultant, the equivalent to actually moved in and united the, the two units. Mm. Uh, so that was very challenging for me in the first few years of my career. And after that was done and, and both units were well embedded and functioning well, I needed another challenge. Um, so when I turned 40, which is quite a long time ago now, I started looking for legacy. Uh, what do I do? How do I give back? And that took me a few years to... Uh, to uh, think of, to formulate. And I, I'm British Indian, so I've spent less than half my life in India, but the first formative years of my life in India. So I'm very au fait with the conditions back in India, the huge inequity in healthcare, the fact that there isn't the NHS, the fact that 90% of people are poor there. And the fact that when I was training there, children would just come to hospital and die because the doctors and nurses had no idea how to treat them. Mm. That, was, that was, in fact, the impetus for me to leave, to, to learn how to look after these critically ill children. It was tragic and fascinating at the same time, because actually, if you look at the statistics in the West, 95 to 98 percent of children we look after who are critically ill do well. Mm. And I want to learn how to do that. And I also saw observed during my training that um, very few surgeons had the ability to perform heart surgery on children mm -hmm. and even less people, less doctors knew how to look after them after heart surgery. Mm -hmm. And that's what basically uh, spurred me on to learn this particular field and specialty. Anyway, so when I was looking for something to give back, having sorted out the two ICUs and Leicester, this is what came to mind immediately, because I knew, even though Bombay is the financial capital, and no, I can't call it Mumbai, because I grew up in, grew up in Bombay, and I've always called it Bombay, so mm. it was going to be Bombay for me. Um, and even though it was a financial capital, in, uh, at the time, there were, for, for financial reasons in, in, in Bombay, there were virtually no hospitals that were able to perform surgery on children, heart surgery on children, and look after them afterwards. Mm. So I called up a particular hospital that I was aware of, fairly well known hospital. I said, uh, my name is so-and-so, this is what I do. Yes. I can bring a team of doctors and nurses to your hospital uh, for about 10 days, and we can perform heart surgery on children referred to you completely for free. Mm. So they were really taken up by the idea. And in 2007, sort of Healing Little Hearts was born. Mm. We went to the hospital in Bombay called the Hinduja Hospital, uh, and we had a phenomenally successful camp. We took a whole team of doctors and nurses, cardiologists, cardiac surgeon, anesthetists, nurses, etc. myself, intensive care person, the whole team. So literally translocated the NHS team in Leicester mm. to this hospital in Bombay, and we performed heart surgery on children completely for free. Uh, had a phenomenally successful trip, and during that trip, the two nurses who came with us uh, thought of the name Healing Little Hearts and said, why don't you name this endeavor Healing Little Hearts? And, and I thought, wow, that actually captures what we do. Mm. So after the phenomenally successful trip and after being on a high, um, there was a very steep fall because the local surgeon who our British surgeon worked with was A, competent, B, very 
uh, threatened by us coming there and doing all this work and essentially showing him up. Mm. And he vetoed any further trips. Oh. So. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So you go from the height to the depths of uh, now nowhere to go to. Uh, so I'm still one sort of a guy and, and obviously it was a setback, but I wasn't going to give up. Uh, and I did some research, other hospitals, uh, and that took me about a year, 18 months. And I found another hospital uh, that wanted to actually start a service, a pediatric cardiac service or a children's heart service, um, and, and, and invited us to go there. So that uh, then things started to, to crystallize. Uh, and this is called the Asian Heart Hospital, uh, run by a very, very renowned adult cardiac surgeon who had the vision uh, to want to start pediatric cardiac surgery in the hospital, had a whole unit available for it, but um, no one to run it. Mm. So he thought this would be a stepping stone um, to starting a whole service in that hospital. Mm. So that got us going again, fortunately. There was a sort of a hiatus, a lull of about 12 to 18 months, but um, got us going. And we, we went there over a period of a year and a half, uh, about six or seven times. And uh, I started actually getting volunteers from outside Leicester. The word started spreading slowly. Mm. And we had six or seven teams, predominantly from Leicester, but also a few from outside Leicester. Once again, whole teams of doctors and nurses who went there to operate uh, uh, on children and look after them afterwards. Um, once again, human nature being what it is, uh, everything seemed to be going well. It's almost too good to be true when I discovered that actually we were going uh, on a charitable basis, pro providing our time on a voluntary basis, but actually they st had started charging families without us knowing. Wow. Of course, you, yeah, of course, you can't find, you can't hide anything like that for too long. And family started complaining to us. And when I confronted them, they denied it. And I thought, I can't work with these guys, they're pretty liars. Yeah. So I walked away. Um, but in the meantime, because people had started hearing about what we were doing, we were approached by another hospital uh, called the Holy Family Hospital. This hospital was run by uh, a Christian missions, and therefore I knew its pedigree. I knew that the same bad experience, the same dishonesty that occurred in Asian Heart wouldn't happen here. Mm. Uh, so we sort of almost seamlessly moved across to that hospital uh, and spent a couple of years there. So early on, whilst all this was happening, we, you know, it was more like a hobby. Uh, go two or three times a year, fairly rewarding. Mm. But it was 2007. Now we are sort of 2010-11. And I thought to myself, um, this is working pretty well. Uh, of course, the statistics, uh, which which are really mind-boggling, hadn't really changed, i.e. every year there are eighty to 90,000 children just in India, and I'll come to the world later on, just in India needing heart surgery, and only fifteen or 20,000 children got any heart surgery. So the scale of the problem was enormous, and having established a track record and having realized uh, and known for a fact that, that there was a huge deficit, not just in Bombay, but across the country, 
I thought, well, why don't I offer my services to different parts of India? Because I have a track record. I've established a model whereby we would go for a week, we would screen all the patients on the weekend, operate Monday to Friday and fly back the following weekend. And that was working very successfully. Mm. So that gave me the confidence. Uh, we had the results. We had an uh, increasing number of volunteers. And I started branching out different cities uh, in India. Mm. So then we, we went from Bombay to various other parts of India, all over uh, north to south to east, Bangalore, Srinagar in Kashmir, which is conflict-ridden, uh, unfortunately, uh, Pondicherry, Goa, Chennai, all sorts of different places, Raipur. Uh, and along the way, the, the volunteer bank started um, increasing in, in size and number. Mm. About 2014, I thought to myself, well, actually, you know, things are working pretty well. And meanwhile, the charity was registered with the UK Charities Commission, and we had now also embarked on a fundraising uh, spree, mm -hmm. doing charity events, encouraging people to donate by direct debit, doing, doing annual charity ball, and, and, and others started taking part in all sorts of sort of marathon, half marathon, skydive, et cetera, et cetera, mm -hmm. the usual ways people raise money. Yeah. Um, then, pe because people in the UK... So colleagues started hearing about what we were doing. Um, colleagues who are British, UK-based, but from different countries started approaching me. I was approached from by somebody based in London from Kenya, from Tanzania, Nigeria, uh, Palestine, etc. And that's when I decided, yes, I, I really want to make this a global foundation for Malaysia. Uh, and... That's when we started venturing outside India. Mm. Um, in addition, the activity of the charity increased pretty dramatically. As I said, early on, it was three or four trips a year. And then from 2014, with the right administrative infrastructure in place, i.e., when I, when I mean administrative, I mean volunteers. Yeah. Nobody get, gets paid. But also... Uh, I'm talking about three or four people running the whole show. I don't mean any more than that. Mm -hmm. We have about 10 committee members, but there are three or four key people who have devoted their lives to eating little hearts who essentially run the show. Mm -hmm. So with their backing, we decided to, to now become a global foundation. Mm -hmm. And we undertake on average 20 international cardiac camps a year. Last year, <coughs> excuse me, it was 23 and during each trip, we operate on 12 to 15 children. And last year, we operated on 296 children in one week. Wow. Which is, yeah, a considerable number. To give you some context, in, as I said, I work in the Children's Heart Unit in Leicester. It's an established unit, and we operate on about 350, 380 children. So whilst traveling, we operated on nearly 300 children, which and with a 96, 97% survival. The survival in the UK is 98 to 99%. So in given the fact that we are, we are operating on children who are diagnosed late, who are much sicker, we are operating in conditions which are very resource constrained, 96 to 97% survival is pretty respectable. Mm. So now we uh, undertake at least 20 trips a year. We've already done 10 so far this year, and we have another at least another 12 lined up for the rest of the year. Uh, we have now been to 11 countries in the world. 
uh, and we've operated on 1,729 children. Wow. So far. That's, uh, it's an incredible story of, and journey, I should say, really, a journey that has uh, huge ripples. You know, people saw what was happening and heard the stories and said, I want to join this movement. I want to, I can help too, because I've seen somebody else doing it and I can do it too. There seemed to be this kind of wave that started. But also what I hear from the story is with all that kindness and with that kind of, um, you know, following the patterns, there was also some of those unkindnesses came out in people. You know, you talked about the consultants that vetoed the idea and, and then the people that started charging and, you know, for all the kindness that you were giving, people still felt compelled to destroy that or or attempt to destroy that. Um, Where do you think that comes from in us? Where do you think it came from in them um, in those situations? I think uh, whilst uh, life is an incredible gift, um, inherently humans are very badly flawed. And there, there is there is a part of us which is very dark, and that part either comes to the fore or is suppressed depending on your circumstances. Mm-hmm. Now you asked me what brought started started me off, uh, and and these were circumstances. So when I was six years old, my mum was an occupational therapist. We were living in in Canada at the time in Toronto, and um, one day when um, she was driving back for work. In fact, on a day which I should have been at nursery when she had, was at work, I was ill, I couldn't go to nursery. She was dri- driving back from work and she was involved in a near fatal car crash. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was, her car was smashed by a truck. That effectively left her completely paralyzed on the left side and totally dependent for 24 hour care, mm-hmm. which meant we had to move back. So we just, just my parents and me. I had no siblings. I have no siblings. Mm. But we had to move back to, to Bombay um, so she could be looked after. And we moved in with actually with her family. Mm. And that's where I met uh, a few angels. Her brother and his wife um, had no children. Mm. And it, it just sort of slipped into place, that fit into place that they had no children. We went there. Not only did they look after my mom, but they looked after me as well. They brought me up. And they brought me up with such incredible kindness, as did my grandmother, that that actually shaped me. Mm-hmm. And from a very young age, because of my mom's circumstances, I wanted to become a doctor. And I was fortunate enough to realize that dream. And I have no doubt that that kindness, which I was brought up with, has shaped me into this and helped me channel my energy uh, in into this uh, sphere, uh, and a lot of people. I mean, I think, as I said, there's greed, there's there's ego, there's all sorts of things that we all we're all born with, or, or we develop, and and we have to fight very hard to suppress those. Uh, ego, I think, lack of insight, greed is sadly responsible for the vast majority of problems human beings face in the world today. 
And what I faced was a classic example of, of those things. To me, it actually was an education. It opened my eyes because I was very naive. And you know, I take people at face value, but this taught me I shouldn't do that. Um, and even subsequently, uh, we have nearly sort of fixed up trips to Ghana. Um, but we've been vetoed, it's been vetoed because the local surgeon felt, felt threatened. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think we're very selfish as human beings, sadly. Uh, too many of us are very selfish. Uh, ultimately, there are 7 billion people on the planet. And there are bound to be so many different variations on the, the theme of human beings. Yeah. Um, so that's the sad reality of life. Yeah. You talked very early on when you were telling us about journey. You talked yeah. about that you started it because you felt it was time that you gave back. Yeah. Um, who and why did you felt compelled to give back? I think, um, so I joined Leicester in 1996, mm-hmm. and as I said, after the initial struggle, and it was a considerable struggle, but after the initial struggle, um, things were working really well. The whole setup in Leicester, the whole children's setup in Leicester had developed pretty rapidly uh, because of what I had um, orchestrated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and once things were almost on autopilot for a period of time. And I'm a sort of restless sort of guy. Even if I go somewhere, you know, if I go back to Bombay for three or four days, I'm bored. I need another challenge. <laughs> uh, after three or four days, I, need, I literally, I go for weekends. I go on a Friday and come back on Tuesday morning. People think I'm completely mad. But by Monday evening, I'm thinking, right, I've had a good time. I've spent time with friends, family. I need to start doing something useful. Yeah. And um, that's what, that's really what drove me because things were going smoothly. And I was not feeling stimulated, mm. and I needed to do something else to feel stimulated. Uh, another challenge. I needed another challenge. Mm. And as I said, for some reason, you know, we have all have these artificial landmarks in our in our heads: twenty one, thirty, forty, fifty, etc. Yeah. Uh, in, in a good way, that landmark of forty made me think. Right, I need to think of legacy and start giving back. Mm. And, and obviously, <laughs> my childhood, my childhood circumstances, my mum. Uh, being the way she was, the great, incredible, immense kindness with which I was brought up, all all helped shape me. Uh, and that's what put me on. It just came to me that I, I, I really need to do something else. Uh, this There seems to be a huge gratefulness within you for, you know, even though there were clearly tough times to watch your mother, you were also grateful for the things that came after that as well and from your family. Uh, I'm a big believer that there's something about that, about when we can be grateful, everything else slots into place in many ways. Well, yeah, absolutely. I'm incredibly grateful because I could have gone the other way. I could have, you know, just um, literally had a diametrically opposite life. Um, because whilst I was brought up with great kindness, um, that I could have, I could have used that to my advantage, i.e., taken advantage of them and mm. and not studied and and got into the wrong company, etc. But early on, I was I was I was taught the difference between right and wrongs by my grandmother, right and wrong from my grandmother, who used to tell me mythological stories about right and wrong, and that 
that's embedded in my brain. I mean, the other thing is that I never, I don't remember my mom. I never actually have any memories of my mom, apart when she was healthy, that is. Yes. I have no idea what she looked like. Uh, yes, you see photographs, you see movies, but nothing tangible. Yeah. And, and my father, for business reasons, had to travel a lot. Mm-hmm. So that put into even greater perspective the amount that this, uh, my uncle and aunt and my grandmom did for me. Um, so yeah, I'm very, 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 very grateful. I mean, and yeah, it, it does sometimes. I'm sort of beginning to write about myself, or I've started writing about myself, and I have no siblings, and I was very lonely as a child. Um, but I've learned to accept it. Yeah, I, d- I will definitely. I would look forward to that being into a book for sure. It sounds like an incredible journey. Within your work, you know, as a consultant within the UK, within the pressures that the NHS gives over many years, you've seen it change and transform, I'm sure, into a very different place. Mm -hmm. Where does kindness for you sit within the work that you do currently and, um, and where have you seen it at its best? Kindness still pervades the NHS. There's mm. no question about it. It's deeply ingrained in pretty much everybody who works in the NHS. Uh, and that's very gratifying. Uh, when I joined in 1997 as a consultant, uh, the NHS was undoubtedly, uh, without question, the best health organization in the world. Mm. And, and whilst kindness is still all-pervading, unfortunately, it's been tainted by all sorts of different things. And I think slowly but surely, unless there is a shift, kindness will, will start to ebb away. And, and, and let me tell you what I mean by that. Mm. And that is that um, the NHS hasn't been led properly Mm. Uh, a culture of expectations and rights and no responsibilities has been allowed to to develop very very rapidly Mm. Uh, a blame culture has been allowed to develop very very rapidly Uh, and that is has begun for a long time now to eat away at the the inner core of kindness Mm. which the vast majority of people who work in the NHS who really want to make a difference have. And when you're constantly having to watch your back and you're constantly and you're regularly having to deal with people who the politicians are not honest with and they set their expectations up. Uh, and you're constantly and you're often having to deal with aggressive people because they think it's their right to talk to you like this and right to expect this and right to expect that. Mm-hmm. Then you start to start to lose um, what inherently is part of you, mm-hmm. because it then becomes a thankless job, uh, and 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 that has become a big problem. We have massive vacancies, uh, fifty thousand to hundred thousand vacancies in the NHS, mm-hmm. because people are just fed up of this constant culture of expectations, mm-hmm. uh, and the government. You know, you can throw money at a problem, but, but that's not enough. The system has to be managed 
in, in an appropriate way so everybody knows the reality of the NHS. The NHS can't cater for each and every need of every individual in this country. It has limitations. And because each and every individual in this country is led to believe that the NHS can cater for all his or her needs, that is where the conflict arises. Mm. And that is a very, very big problem. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and uh, I've never seen so many demoralized people. It's very, very sad. Mm. How would you make some changes within it to bring back the positivity that existed within the NHS before? Well, I think um, it seems like the NHS is a de facto religion of the country. And anybody who who has an open and frank conversation with the NHS, about the NHS, I think sadly will be voted out. We want the best possible service, but we don't want to hear the truth. Mm. And that inherent contradiction just is, is, is the big problem. You know, um, let me give an example. There's just one example which highlights, to me, highlights this issue. Uh, a few months ago, and this goes back to the theme that the NHS cannot provide everything for everybody. Mm. So a simple example like paracetamol and ibuprofen. If you go to the local supermarket, it costs 16 pence to buy a packet of paracetamol. And even... And, and pretty much everybody in this country who's, who's rightly supported by a very good system, social security system, can afford paracetamol mm. or ibuprofen. Yet the NHS spent or had, was spending 100 million pounds uh, on prescription for paracetamol and ibuprofen. Wow. And yes, and to wean people off this, they needed, they, there was a, a public consultation. Now, if you can't point out the reality, the economical reality, that in the supermarket it costs uh, 16p or 20p, and yet a prescription will cost nine pounds. Yeah. If you can't point out, how are you going to deal with all the other realities of the NHS? Mm -hmm. And that, that, to me, that sums up the problem. People, yeah. people at the helm have got to be honest. And people at the helm have got, yes, uh, we must all do our best to look after patients like they're members of our family. But sadly, inevitably, because human beings are involved, there will be mistakes. And, and when there are mistakes, if, pe if people who make those mistakes are made to feel like they're persecuted, then A, they will never own up to the mistakes, B, they will never learn, and C, there will always be this defensive culture. Yeah, I mean, that honesty part as well, it's just so, so important um, that we, are, we start to have those honest conversations, yes. really, about things. Yes. And people often think, oh, we can't speak the truth to be kind, but actually... It's absolutely vital that we do start having honest conversations um, in all areas of our lives, really. Well, that's right. You know, just today, there's an article in, in one of the papers about the fact that there are a huge number of paramedic vacancies. Mm -hmm. yeah, of course there are, because people who, paramedics who play a vital role in the NHS, face a lot of abuse and aggression. Now, that's not acceptable. 
No. So it's those sorts of things which drive people away. Mm. And that has got to be that imbalance between rights and responsibilities have got to be addressed so everybody who's doing their best in the NHS can can function without fear of, of, of aggression. Yeah, absolutely. Sanjeev, I, I, can't, I can't believe that we've actually come to the end of the podcast already because I feel that everyone will want to ask lots more questions of you, your um, knowledge, opinions and challenges in your life have been incredibly insightful i want to ask one more question which i always ask at the end of the podcast and what does the term a culture of kindness mean to you uh, a culture of kindness is is something that first of all is sadly lacking i think mm. uh, and Culture of kindness is something human beings um, should be able to participate in very readily, but all too often that doesn't happen. And I, and I think that begins in the home, and I think that uh, imbibing a culture of kindness uh, even uh, begins in education about that begins at school as well. And even small acts of kindness, everything should be promoted, highlighted, uh, and we should be taught, co coaxed into to learning, understanding uh, how to behave with, with each other, behave kindly with each other. Absolutely. Uh, I think there's just too little of that. Absolutely. What a way to end it. Sanjeev, thank you so much for your time. Um, it's incredibly precious, I know, in the work that you do. And um, I know the listeners will absolutely love this episode. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much, Nala. Nice talk. Thanks. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye, Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Whether you're a CEO or department manager, you can build a more productive, profitable and engaged workforce through adopting the theory laid out in my latest book available on Amazon, aptly also named A Culture of Kindness. It will guide you on how to be the type of leader that every employee remembers for all the right reasons. You can also subscribe to the monthly newsletter at www.nahalasummers.com to hear more about the latest talks, courses and upcoming podcast episodes. Thank you.